I'm April West. And I'm Katherine Sigblad. We're both first-time moms who are passionate about following our intuition and not afraid to do things differently. To say we question everything is an understatement. If you find yourself analyzing ingredient labels, searching for holistic alternatives to pharmaceuticals and routine practices, and you're curious about all things baby wearing, bed sharing, and postpartum, you will feel right at home here. In this podcast, we fearlessly confront the pregnancy, birth, and postpartum industries, share our mom hacks, and never stop challenging the status quo. We simplify the approach to motherhood and trust in nature. We are moms off the record. Thanks for tuning in to part two of episode five. We'll continue our conversation right where we left off, picking up with what is MMR? What do the vaccines look like? What are the adverse reactions potentially to this vaccine? We'll define what those diseases actually are and their prevalence today. We'll continue our conversation as well, just so you're fully informed on all things childhood vaccine. We're going to get into some potential research bias and conflicts of interest. We'll talk through some questions to ask your providers and ways to ease the conversation around vaccination. We'll also give you some tips on finding a vaccine-friendly pediatrician in your area. We'll talk through exemptions if you need to explore those. And we'll finish on a meta-analysis done by an Oregon pediatrician. So stay tuned. We still have a jam-packed agenda for you. And thank you so much for your continued support. You want to start then? Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Very passionate about this. So let's just talk about I want to talk about MMR, which stands for measles, mumps, and rubella, because this is going to be one that pretty much across the board, wherever you are in the world, is going to be on the childhood vaccine schedule. Oftentimes you're told like this is a necessity. Trust me, like getting this vaccine will make your child healthier. And I see this, I I see on social media too, practitioners are telling their uh, patients or parents that the only side effects they need to worry about are usually just um, soreness at the injection site or swelling or some redness and a fever, <laughs> right? Well, clearly they either did not read the black box warning or the label insert, which you can find directly from the FDA.org, or they did read it, but didn't feel like it was necessary to share all the adverse reactions. So let's just talk about from the FDA, and this is how you can find it. Pop up in Google and search MMR black box warning. It should be the very first result in the search engine results page. Um, And it's going to be the MMR package insert. Every single shot and vaccine has a package insert with a list of adverse side effects and risks, just so you know, in case you weren't sure. And this is not something your doctor has, you know, behind closed doors. You can access it. It's not behind a paywall. And it's from the FDA.org. I want to read you some of the adverse reactions. Let's see how far I can get. It's, it's It's a long list. So it says here, the following adverse reactions include those identified during clinical trials or reported during post-approval of use of MMR2 vaccine or its individual components. Yes, and it's important to understand, too, that adverse reactions can take up to seven weeks to show. So it might not happen right away, and you have up till seven weeks to report it in order to be protected by the VICP. So... A lot of these I actually hadn't even heard of, um, just 
never came across these um, illnesses. Paniculitis, atypical measles, fever. Fever is really honestly not a big deal in my opinion. Um, Headache, dizziness, malaise, irritability. Okay, sounds like not great, but not too alarming. But let's continue. Um, Vasculitis, so within your cardiovascular system. Uh, then it, it, so it's divided by the the theme. Digestive system would be pancreatitis, diarrhea, vomiting, uh, nausea, hematologic and lymphatic systems. So thrombocytopenia. I actually don't even know what that is. Um, per purpura, purpura <laughs> regional lymphadenopathy, uh, leukocytosis. And then in your immune system, anaphylaxis, anaphylactoid reactions, angioedema, including peripheral or facial edema, so that's swelling of the face, and bronchial spasm, also arthritis, myalgia. But let's talk about some of the more severe ones. It looks like it's going in order of severity in this list. Nervous system, so encephalitis. Okay, encephalitis. Please talk about that. Okay. Um, From my understanding, this is one that we don't want to f- with because it's uh, yeah. swelling of the brain, right? Yes, exactly. So it says here in Google, um, encephalitis is an uncommon but serious condition in which the brain becomes inflamed or swollen. It can be life-threatening and requires urgent treatment in the hospital. Anyone can be affected, but the very young and very old are most at risk. And guess who gets the MMR? The very young. So... If you're asking if I would rather have the actual illness, or I'd rather have my child have the actual illness of measles, mumps, and rubella versus potential encephalitis, you betcha I would. But I want to continue because it gets even crazier. Guillain-Barre syndrome, GBF. Also a big one. Yes. Yes. And we, wasn't it, um, what's his face? Justin Bieber, I think, who might have had Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, we don't know. It's a, it's, a rare, it's a rare disorder where your body's immune system damages the nerves. So your yeah. own protective system is nerve damaging. Yep. Um, not fun. And then febrile convulsions, afebrile convulsions or seizures, ataxia, polyneuritis, polyneuropathy, ocular. Anyway, a, a lot of these terms, you know, I, I'll be honest, I don't know what a lot of these things are. Is, isn't that kind of scary enough? And then when you Google it, it's like, wow, swelling of the brain, um, pneumonia, sore throat, cough, rhinitis. Yes. Uh, and then let's see here. Let's we can't see. ignore okay. the biggest thing. Oh, go ahead. Death? Yeah. Well. No. But I mean, I, I don't know if it says that, but I, I will say this. Uh, again, this is anecdotal, but I know of people who have family members and friends who have kids who right after MMR, uh, they either regressed and all their milestones became nonverbal or had or seized, um, right. Or did have encephalitis. So I I just want to point out April when, when Google tells you or these inserts or your doctor tells you it's extremely rare or it's uncommon, but serious, you need to quantify that, right? How uncommon because uncommon to you might mean one in 20 or one in 100. I'm just making up numbers, for example, sake. one in unco- uncommon to me might mean one in a thousand, right? So this is very vague. And again, we, we see practitioners dismissing these very real concerns, which are already on the FDA label. And MM, 
MMR is one of the big hot topic ones because of autism. And right. again, we're not going to be able to say necessarily it does or does not cause, right? That that but study has not say. that study has not <laughs> been done. However, there is a striking feature of the association between MMR and autism, and the prevalence of the disorder has increased significantly, coincidental, with the introduction of the trivalent vaccine in the 80s. So used to, back in the 80s, MMR were three separate vaccines. They did this trivalent vaccine because they thought, well, we have to go into the pediatrician less or baby has to get less shots, right? Baby has to get less shots. And the fact that the children who developed autism were entirely healthy and developmentally normal prior to the receipt of the vaccine. And this is in Aviva Rahm's book on page 111. And there's, she quotes several studies that have been done to find a link between MMR and autism. I'm not here to tell you that one causes the other. Not everybody who gets the MMR will become autistic by any stretch. But if there's a risk involved there, that's something I don't want to f*** with my baby. So let's talk about how prevalent measles, mumps, yeah. and rubella are as diseases and how dangerous are those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is another one of my favorites to touch on. Uh, so if you, again, this is public information, you can Google this measles cases in the United States. Let's mm-hmm. look at last year, 2022, 121 cases for mumps, 322 cases, rubella, 13 cases. I'm talking about in the United States in 2022, the United States has 332 some odd million people. 332 million people. And we'll, we'll just talk about very high level, like what is measles, mumps, and rubella. So yeah, I want to go into like that. Scary things. Let's go into that. But if you're telling me that there's 13 cases of rubella out of 332 million people, but then the adverse reactions the FDA lists in the insert for MMR include encephalitis, febrile seizures, and GBS. a whole... GBS, a whole list of things I'm not even going to try to pronounce, then yeah. Right. If I had to choose between the two... I would rather get the actual rubella and then get that lifelong immunity. We live in an over-vaccinated society to begin with. We live in a very hygienic and sanitary first world country. We're no longer dumping our feces out of a window and then it's pouring down into the street into our drinking water, right? So right. I that was feel literally the state in the, 18, the late 1800s, yes. by the way, where polio was crazy. It was because of yes. that. We were drinking our own water and we were living in rooms with you know dark moldy rooms no windows with lots of people in one room it was overcrowded i mean the the living conditions back in the 1800s when polio for example was crazy were wildly different than they are today absolutely yes so So let's go into what these are right measles you google measles okay this is an acute viral respiratory illness so it's a virus it is characterized by a prodrome of fever as high as 105. Okay, it's high. And malaise, so not feeling good. Cough, choriza, and conjunctivitis, the three C's. A patho, a pathognomonic anathema, coplic spots, followed by a macular papular rash. And guys, Let's, as you're hearing this, if you can't pronounce certain words, right, because they're, they're kind of uh, long and you know very medicalized, don't let that 
minimize your confidence level when speaking about these topics. That is sometimes what the system wants is like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about, right? Like you can't pronounce that word or you're not a doctor. These are all thrown at parents to kind of uh, make them cower, right? Put your tail behind your legs so that you don't look into it. Don't let that deter you. So what is it? It's a virus. Okay. You get a fever. We know that fevers are good for us, right? Talk about um, that. that it, why are fevers yeah. good for us? Because a lot of us use uh, fever reducers when we're sick. So why are fevers good? Yeah, fevers are good because it's the body's way of getting rid of something. De- it, it's the body's way of detoxing. So you don't yeah. want to suppress a fever, right? You don't want to suppress glutathione. It's good for you. Obviously, if a fever is too high and if a newborn, meaning from the ages of zero to three months, anytime they have a fever, you should go to the ER, right? And obviously talk to your doctor about all this, you know, our disclaimer, but we're talking about for just normal, healthy kids and adults here, fevers are good. We should be embracing them. It's a way to detox. Other bad things can occur when we try to suppress a fever. Do you want to speak to that real quick? And then I want to go to mumps and rubella. Let's keep going because I I also want to just plug Dr. Sears vaccine book because the way he lays it out, you don't have to read this thing front to cover, cover to cover. You can go in. Each chapter is segmented by the disease. So what is the disease? What is the risk of the disease? How common is it? And then what is the vaccine that's associated with it? What are the risks of that vaccine? What's in the ingredients? How is it made? Are they controversial? Are there combination vaccines? And then he gets into, should you give it or should you not? And he doesn't tell you, by the way, he just provides reasons to get it. And he provides reasons some people choose not to get it. So you can literally go into chapter seven, all on MMR. And the way he talks about measles is it's a rash accompanied with a fever, like you said, and it lasts for about a week. And then life returns to normal without any lasting problems. Yeah. This is on page 79. I have more that I want to bring up about measles too from one of my favorite sources. So we'll get back to that real quick. Let's talk about what mumps is so that we can stop fearing these, um, which by yeah, the way, these were very normal, yeah. yeah, normal and common childhood illnesses of the nineties and prior to that, which now all of a sudden are just, they're so scary. They're almost deadly. Not okay. Mumps is the best known for the puffy cheeks and tender swollen jaw that it causes. This is a result of swollen salivary glands under the ears on one or both sides, often referred to as paratitis. Other symptoms that might begin a few days before paratitis include fever and headache. What do you see? There's a lot of commonalities. The fever, not feeling good, not looking good, but it's- Your body's natural immunal response, yes. Yeah, illness is not a death sentence. Of course, there's caveats with everything. We we know that preemies and the immunocompromised, it can be death sentence. We are talking in generalizations. For most people, these childhood illnesses are not a death sentence. Let's go into the definition of rubella real quick. Yeah. Wait. Before you move on yeah. from mumps, okay, it says here in Dr. Dr. Sears' book, page 82, it is transmitted like the common cold. And once you catch mumps, you are protected for life. Boom. How does that sound versus needing to get all kinds of boosters or just not being protected for life? I mean, yeah. And before we move fine. on to rubella, before we move on, yeah. he asks, is mumps common? He says, no, although it is making a comeback. In decades past, there were only 250 cases of mumps each year, okay? So virtually all cases have been in vaccinated older teens and young adults. 
wild. It seems like the vaccine wears off by this age and living in close quarters like dorms, colleges, and camps allow these breakouts to occur. So yeah. it's actually more common amongst the vaccinated. What does that also remind you of, I, April? I mean, guys, it's, this is Come out on. there in plain sight. Like, why are we worried about catching mumps if we're just a normal child? We get some swelling in the cheeks, okay? We get a fever, we're out a week, and then we're protected yeah. for life versus getting it later in college. Mm-hmm. Sounds yeah. like fun. Go on to rubella. Yeah, go on to rubella. Rubella, this is a very short and sweet definition. A contagious viral disease with symptoms like mild measles, okay? It can cause fetal malformation if contracted early in pregnancy. Now, we can admit, yeah, that last part, that sounds pretty bad and scary. That's, that's, scary. that's a bad risk. However, can we also go back to the facts? What are the facts about the number of cases of rubella in the United States, a country of 332 million people in 2022? cases. Yeah. And at the time this book was written, which I think was in 2018, zero rubella cases. Okay. So it's not a prevalent issue out there. And is it common nowadays? No. No, it is not. In fact, I would wager a guess if you ask most people, what is rubella? What does it look like? They probably don't even know because you're hardly ever or never going to see it. Um, I want to go back to measles. And by the way, the reason we're, we're pinpointing some specifics here in terms of these childhood illnesses and vaccines is you're probably going to notice as you hear us speak, there's a lot of common denominators, right? In the way they're treated and then the outcomes, how we view this as a whole. The point is we're hoping you can make informed decisions and use critical thinking and um, question a way. little bit more. Yeah, yeah, and weigh the 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 risks. More people. Yeah. There are some people who are very risk averse, and when you say twenty cases out of three hundred thirty-two million, that's too much to gamble. Okay, yeah. we get that. We understand that there are going to be people who are like, "Hell no, don't. I'm not doing it." But there are going to be other people who to who look at twenty cases out of three hundred thirty-two million people and say, "You know what?" Yeah, I'd rather not risk it. We're not here to tell you what decision to make. We're here to present the information that you might not be finding or hearing from your doctor. You might not have thought to research this stuff. And once we did, we felt like it was too important not to share. Yeah. And that brings me to um, a source that I highly recommend everyone adds to their list. This book is called Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and the Changing Nature of Childhood Illness. It's by Thomas Cowan, MD. Mm. Um, Around the time of all the the COVID madness we saw in the last couple of years, um, his license was removed. Um, I don't specifically know if it was by choice or not. I'm guessing he was either forced into, um, you know, giving up his license or they took it away from him keeping in mind he was practicing in San Francisco. Okay. Surprise, Mm. surprise. Um, So take it or leave it. But this guy was an MD for decades and he had a family practice. He uh, talks about his observations with his pediatric patients who weren't vaccinated versus who came to his practice and were vaccinated because they started off at other practices. I want to read an excerpt from chapter one, page 11. It's called the changing nature of childhood illness. Quote, when I was growing up in the early 1960s, he's the doctor speaking, I knew of one child in our elementary school in suburban Detroit who had asthma. 
Otherwise, I don't really recall any other children who had any sort of chronic illness or who used prescription medicines. Many of us had horrible diets, yet chronic disease among children was relatively unknown. No one had ever heard of autism, let alone had a family member with autism. Food allergies, to the degree that anyone was aware of them, were unknown. Peanuts at the ball game were still a popular treat. Let's skip ahead to page 12. I rarely saw an unvaccinated child in my practice with a chronic illness of any sort. In general, these children ate healthy diets, played outside a lot, and were in good health. However, among the patients who were partially or fully vaccinated, like I said, because they had seen other physicians in the past and then came to him, they had one or more chronic health conditions, including asthma, eczema, seizures, and digestive disorders. As time went on, all of these disorders became more common among the partially or fully vaccinated children I saw. I believe this corresponded with the introduction in the late, what is it, 1980s, I think, to the mid-1990s of certain adjuvants and excipients, which April, you spoke about earlier, as well as the introduction of even more vaccines. Okay, so let's continue here. Now, this is setting the stage for when he talks about measles, okay? He says, my New Hampshire practice also afforded me the opportunity to treat some of the illnesses for which most children are routinely vaccinated. I have seen hundreds of cases wow. of whooping cough, including in all my three children, hundreds of cases of chickenpox, approximately 50 cases of measles, one case of tetanus, about 20 cases of mumps, a few cases of German measles, no diphtheria, no meningitis, no cases of paralytic polio, wow. and no new onset cases of hepatitis B. Two children in my care were hospitalized as a result of these illnesses. Two, one from complications of chickenpox and one for tetanus. As far as I know, all of the children, including the two who were hospitalized, emerged alive and well with no long-term complications as a result of their illness. Repeat after me, illness is not a death sentence. Okay? Yep. And you know what's interesting um, yeah. is Aviva Ram in her book says the same thing, right? Mm. She says, the assumption that healthy children don't get sick is erroneous and some illness is desirable because the immune system is stimulated and it builds immunity on the basis of contracting infectious diseases, meaning you're building your immune system to where you won't be getting these later down the road. Whereas the vaccine, maybe they delay that, but then we know the immunity wanes. You're not protected for life. And then you're getting this at, as an adult or yeah. later in life. So it is okay to get sick, especially with these things. You said whooping cough for our listeners. That's pertussis, the vaccine yeah. against pertussis, okay? Which is Let's talk about commonly that. a multivariant drug, drug um, DTaP, or if you're later in life, Tdap. There are just different versions. One thing I want to talk about really quickly though, before we, before I forget is, and I, we briefly mentioned it, the multivariant drug versus the singular the, drug. The multivalent. Multivalent. Correct. Yeah. yeah. The multivalent drug versus the single. If you are concerned about one of these diseases, like let's say measles scares you, but because rubella, we had zero cases in 2018, we had what, less than 10 cases or whatever you said um, this last year, we don't need that one. It is okay to ask your provider 
to get the single dose of whatever vaccine you choose for. You do not have to get the combo drugs. And I want to talk about that really quickly. And I know you have a thought too, but let's talk about it. Aviva Rahm's book, she talks about this as well. The multivalent vaccines, okay? So the ones that are bundled, MMR, or it might be MMRV, which includes varicella, which is chickenpox. There is no guarantee that the new multivalent vaccines confer adequate immunity. Although the FDA requires the combination drug vaccine not be inferior in purity, potency, or immunogenicity, or efficacy, researchers are unsure of how to test for safety and effectiveness. How do you test against combo drugs? How do you test in a study? If you're isolating one disease, how are you testing that the multivalent drug is actually working against all three? You can't test for that. So while the FDA is out here making the claim that, yeah, it cannot be inferior to the manufacturers, the manufacturers are admitting that they don't know how to research that. Again, talking out of both sides of their mouth. But here's the scary thing. In life, you might contract mumps or rubella. You might come across that as a child, especially if you're in a daycare situation where you have lots of kids and blah, blah, blah. The, what are the odds that you're actually going to come across mumps, measles, varicella, and <laughs> rubella all at once, Kat, as a child? Are you just going to stumble across all four of those diseases at once? I mean, I would say low. I um, didn't even have, I don't even think I had MMR and I was around lots of kids from a very early age and I never contracted measles, mumps or rubella naturally. I just got chickenpox yeah. in 95 when I was five. That's it. What about you? Right, exactly. You're not going to come across all four of those antigens at once. However, when you're vaccinating your child with those combo drugs, you're inserting all four of those all at once. And you wonder why we have autoimmune disorders and we Mm -hmm. have crazy reactions to these things because we're not introducing just the antigens, but we're also introducing all those other known toxins and known carcinogens and the... Oh, excipients. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So, (laughs) I mean that just makes me want to rip my hair out is we're over here looking at our brand new babies and we're injecting all this bullshit into them all at once when all they've ever known is our milk for months or potentially formula. So anyway, well, I think what, what I upsets me too, no, no, that's fine. I think what upsets me too is just adhering or complying to the quote schedule, genuinely thinking that there's no risk to any of these shots when we know with anything in life, right? Even when we're told introduce one food at a time to your baby when you're starting solid so that you can see if they have an allergic reaction. So why do we normalize that? But we don't normalize just, okay, introduce one vaccine at a time and and observe them to see if they have reaction. Okay. There's Mm -hmm. a little bit of a hypocrisy there. But okay, real quick, I do want to, there's just a a couple more paragraphs on measles that I outlined in this book from Dr. Thomas Cowan. Okay. Chapter 10, the measles vaccine, a case of oversimplification. Quote, with measles, we have perhaps the classic infectious childhood illness, one that is currently provoking almost hysterical reactions from public health officials and worried parents. Let's take a step back and examine the history of measles and see what we can learn about this quintessential childhood illness. 
And the reason he calls it quintessential, he later discusses in the book is when you, like we discussed so many times and Dr. Aviva Ram discussed, when you naturally contract measles, it really sets up your immune system for life. So then he says, what many people don't realize is that by the time the measles vaccine was introduced in 1963, it had actually ceased to be a public health threat in the United States. Hmm. That actually reminds me of uh, polio and polio. Much every other vaccine. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mortality from measles had already declined 98.5% from 13.3 per 100,000 to 0.2 per 100,000. Wow. Due to improvements in living conditions, nutrition, and mm-hmm. medical care right? Just like with polio, according to physicians for informed consent. In the decades prior to the introduction of the vaccine, parents had such a casual attitude about it that they frequently held measles parties to ensure their children's exposure, just like we had Mm. chicken pox parties. You would never hear about that. Now that is so taboo. You're not allowed to talk about that on the playground with other moms now. You'll, You'll be looked at like you have three heads. Doctors discovered that giving their young measles patients adequate vitamin A in the form of cod liver oil was sufficient to protect them from complications mm-hmm. for measles. Dr. Smith yes. says that too. See, guys? Vitamin A. There you go, from cod liver oil, not synthetic vitamin A. Less than 10 years after the polio vaccine was introduced, the measles vaccine came along and changed the way we think about measles. Wow, interesting. Last thing I'll say on this, vaccine manufacturers, pediatricians, public health officials, and the media assure us that the immunity conferred by a vaccine is identical to the immunity conferred by the illness. But with a vaccine, there is a limited cell-mediated response. With the measles vaccine, the immunity is not lifelong, as April's mentioned, and confers none of the immunological benefits of fighting the disease. Why do mm. I talk about that in depth so much? Because you, as the listener, have to weigh out your own and your child's own risks versus benefits. These childhood illnesses need to stop being so scary and intimidating and foreign. We need to embrace them, mm-hmm. in my exactly. personal opinion. And right? I'd, have to, I'd have to agree with you. And you. it's not because I'm a more risk-seeking person, but I'm a thinking person who I don't, when we talk about the risk of brain swelling or ADHD or autism or food allergies or asthma or obesity or diabetes, these seizures, these are not things that I want to risk my child or potentially introduce to my child over something like a fever, a rash, a swelling of the cheeks chicken pox. I'm okay with that. That's the risk I'm willing to take. Either way, April. Yeah. No, I'm with you here. And again, like, we'll just reiterate too, you might be listening, thinking we're the wackadoodles and you would do the opposite. And Hey, that's okay. It's about informed consent. But April, we talked about whooping cough. We didn't get to that one specific statistic and point we wanted to highlight earlier. I don't think we discussed that from dissolving illusions. Do you want to talk about that? Just because that's another real quick popular one. And then we, we might be able to move on. On pertussis? From, uh, oh, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Okay. So uh, for a little right. context here, we were uh, we were listening to a po- another podcast that the co-author, Roman Bistrianik, 
Bistrianic, I'm probably butchering his last name, was on from another podcast. He's the co-author of Dissolving Illusions. Talks about whooping cough. April, go into it. Okay. So back in the day, there was a study done in 1988. And this is a good segue, by the way, for us to get into the corrupt studies. Okay. So good, good on you. So there was a report and you can find it on Google. If you Google report of the task force on pertussis and pertussis immunization in 1988, you will find this report. Okay. That the Dr. Bistrionic. Butchering it. Uh, Roman Bistrionic, uh, PhD, co-author of Dissolving Illusions. Yep. So he cites this paper in this podcast that he's talking about. And we'll try and insert a clip here. Is the, the people who wrote studies. And, uh, I, and honestly, I don't know what their motivation was. They could have been, um, they could, could have made a mistake. They could have been biased for vaccines because they work for a manufacturer or... I don't know why it occurred, but when you look at their medical literature, for example, pediatrics, it was a big, big report um, in pediatrics in 1988. And I got that report and they referenced the same, they referenced a historical um, uh, mortality from colonial times to whatever, I can't remember exactly. But in there, you could take the same data points that I had already recovered and chart them. But so it was basically the same data set. It was a little variations, but it was basically the same. But right. what they wrote in their article, the first paragraph was, and this was all true. This is all true what they said. They said five to 10,000 people used to die from whooping cough. But today, only five to 10 die. And they go, well, that's thanks to vaccination. Well, that is that part is false because they already had a 92% decline and the, if you look at the trend, the trend was unaffected by the vaccination. It, it's, it's crystal clear. So they either missed it or they purposely misrepresented it. I don't know. But either way, right. the, whole, the whole paper, which is on camera how many pages, it was quite a, quite a long article, is worthless because their opening paragraph is wrong. Right. They should have said, hey, there was a decline in mortality and vaccinations really didn't have much of an impact. <laughs> but for whatever reason, they did not write that. I don't know these people, don't know their motivations. I can't speak to why, but it was a complete. Medical journals always assume that these people have integrity, that these reports are peer-reviewed. However, there are biases in the system. So yes, let's get into and, that because I, yeah, I want to talk, talk about these these um, pharma-funded research studies, okay? So... Mm -hmm. I've got a couple examples that we can share with our listeners, but Dr. Sears actually has this in his book as well. Okay, let's start. I want to hear what Dr. Sears has to say too and some examples. Okay. So he talks about potential conflicts of interest. So all the time when we're hearing about vaccine safety and efficacy, right? All of this is backed by research. These are studies conducted by professional researchers and doctors who are saying that this is safe and effective. Granted, we have an anecdote already from 2002 where we knew that mercury, they had 87 times the amount of safe mercury, right? So we, we know that these studies that have been done have been wrong in the past, okay? How dare but you question the science, April. Never How mind that. You? Never mind that, yeah. So... <laughs> Criticisms of the research concluding 
And this is specifically, let me just set some context here. In this section of his book, he's talking about the really hot topic of autism and vaccines. Okay. And there's, there's some really good points he's making. Let's back up one, two pages, page 213. Dr. Sears says, you scientifically, you cannot prove that vaccines do not cause autism because in science, you cannot prove a negative. You can't prove that something does not cause something else. We can look for a link or an increase in risk between two variables, but when we don't find a link, we cannot then conclude there is no link. We just can conclude that we failed to find a link, right? So mm-hmm. any doctor, listeners, moms out there, please, any doctor, researcher, or media spokesperson who says that we know vaccines don't cause blank, insert issue, they're not being scientifically accurate. That's and not by how the, way, the scientific method works. Yes. We're not necessarily saying all vaccines do cause autism, but we are saying that there is a there has been a very strong correlation. You Correct. can be the ones to decide and glean from that using your critical thinking. And you know, is it right to say like ever, guaranteed it's always going to lead to that? Not necessarily, but it's the accumulation of all these neurotoxins with an inability for us to detox and the accumulation over time. Yes. On w- when our immune system is its most fragile when we're brand new babies. So then now let's fast forward. By the way, let's talk about the scientific method because I don't want anybody doubting for a minute that we cannot say that a vaccine does not cause something. Okay. Yeah. Here's the scientific method. Let's let's take it back to fucking sixth grade when we had our. <laughs> what did you do? Your did you do a science fair project? Oh yes. Um. Every year, my dad helped me. That was his thing. We we participated in the science fair from sixth grade all the way through ninth grade. I I said I was done after ninth grade. What about you? Did you? What was your best one? Okay. So do you remember any? I talked. To, well, I'm going to tell you my first one because it's really cute. I talked, I, I proved um, basically <laughs> how photo, phototropism exists. And so I had these cute little plants. They look like little cilantro plants, I think, and like an artificial light source. And I would track over time. Um, I would track their growth towards the light to prove that plants grow towards the light. I was 10 years old. I, I had a much more advanced one. Thank you. I, I don't know what how that would help society in any way, proving that phototropism exists. But um, I had a, a more advanced one in ninth grade. What was it? It was cylindrical. You know what? I'm not even going to try to tell you what it was. It, this We're talking over 15 years ago. Let's just stick with that okay. one. Tell me about your, your favorite one. That's I want to hear this. Talk about <laughs> a useless study from a Florida girl. Okay. I wanted to know what type of orange produced the most juice. So I was testing that the navel orange would produce the most juice. Okay. So anyway, (laughs) stupid, but scientific method. Was your hypothesis correct? Or was it another kind of orange that produced the most juice? I don't, I don't think I even set up the study in a way because, you know, I didn't have enough control. Okay. Right. I was was manually cranking these oranges on the uh, grinder to like get the juice out. And so I I had this big ass navel orange compared to a tiny little, uh, cute. Like a mandarin. Oh yeah. Yeah. A mandarin. You're like, okay. Yeah. So anyway, stupid, but here's the scientific method. Okay. (laughs) Step one, you make an observation. So vaccine, for example, vaccines cause autism. That's the observation. Ask a question. Does it, does this thing alone cause autism? 
Then you form a hypothesis. I think so. I think that vaccines cause autism or a testable explanation. Then you make a prediction. Then you test it. And then you iterate. You have to have control and you have to have variables. Okay? So when we are looking at, for example, vaccine and autism, and we don't necessarily find that this thing causes that thing, we can't just say, nope, it doesn't. We just failed to find that. Okay. So anyway, put that to bed. Yeah. So, but, but hold on, April, you know, especially in the last couple of years, would you say that we've been witnessing the reverse scientific method, which is I'm going to lead with a conclusion for whatever reason, and then I'm going to work my way backwards to try my best to just put some data together and some quote studies to prove that my conclusion is right. Confirmation bias. Well, and that is a great segue into the pharma-funded studies because it really depends. I don't know. I don't, I don't want to sit here and say that there is a malicious intention. I, I hate to believe that. I'm naive. I don't want to believe that. But does that potentially exist? Sure, because we've seen it exist in the past. Take Merck, for example, right back in 1991 with the whole mercury issue. He knew of that for a decade. The president of this company knew that for a decade and they refused to pull it. Because why? Money was coming in and we have shareholders that we're responsible for. So for us to pull that, it would be terrible. So when we look at the research, we have to look at who's funding the research. And we've said this before on a previous episode, and we'll say it again for this one. When we look at vaccine safety and efficacy, please, for the love of God, look to see who is funding that research. Nine times out of 10, guess who's funding the research? Tell us. The manufacturers. Right. The manufacturers of these vaccines. For example, <clears throat> the largest study that most experts refer to when claiming that vaccine mercury is safe is the Danish study. Hello, Swedes. Uh, Madsen <laughs> Pediatrics <laughs> 2003. <laughs> the validity of this study is in question, however, due to the reports that one of the Danish researchers, Paul Torsen, T-H-O-R-S-E-N, has been indicted for stealing a million dollars worth of the CDC's research. Nothing so to this, see here. Nothing to see <laughs> nothing, here. Nothing. However, this fraud does cast doubt on the validity of other Madsen and Thorson research that involved CDC funding, including the largest study of showing a link between MMR and autism. Okay, so, and where can people find the New England Journal of Medicine? Yep, it's on uh, page 217 of Dr. Sears' book. You can look at the New England Journal of Medicine and look up the Danish study, Madsen Pediatrics 2003. Okay, so that is one excellent, and by excellent, yes. I mean horrible So uh, let's example. Just, let's just put the pin in the point. When pharma is funding their own studies in an environment where they are not liable for f***ing up, there's an inherent and unavoidable bias in the research because they can go full steam ahead. They can find the studies. They can fund it in such a way. They'll build the studies to show, yeah, there's no link. And then guess what? When there is a link, when somebody's child is showing regression at two years or 18 months after they get their MMR dose, and now all of a sudden you have a nonverbal two-year-old. Or a seizing two-year-old. Or worse, right? Mm -hmm. Don't worry. We're not liable. 
as the manufacturer. Yeah, they're literally not liable, as you'll recall from uh, the, the act of 1986. It's, it's f***ing gross. <laughs> the more yeah. we get into this, the more I'm just like, oh, I'm Once very you disappointed it, with how the system is set up. Well, yeah. Once you see this stuff, there is no going back, right? So I, I kind of understand on the one hand, like, well, ignorance is bliss. I, right, we hear this April. I have full faith and trust in my doctor. I believe. And you know what? We actually did hear that. We did yeah. hear that. I, I want to say that because um, in our Instagram, I think it was before we had our moms off the record pod and I knew we were going to be doing this. I asked my friends, hey, do you choose to vaccinate your child? If so, why? And if not, why? And there was one respondent, a, a friend of a friend who said, yeah, I fully trust my pediatrician. And mm-hmm. I know that we want to trust our pediatrician. And I don't want to sit here and say that all pediatricians are bad. This, this is just information that's probably not something that crosses their radar very often. They're not well studied on vaccines. They don't let's ask moms out there. If you've recently got your child vaccinated, do you know what all of the vaccines they received? Do you know what's in the ingredients in that vaccine? Were you given informed consent? Did your pediatrician tell you the benefits versus the risk? Did your pediatrician show you the VIS? Also, I want to add some questions. Um, if you expressed any doubts or concerns or asked questions, do you feel like you your concerns were dismissed? Were they downplayed? Were you told, oh, those side effects are very rare. They, they almost never happen. Were you told that the only side effect to any vaccine was soreness or swelling at the site of an injection and a fever? Additionally, if you told your pediatrician that you'd like to decline or delay or defer any of the shots, that you would be kicked out of their practice for not adhering to the CDC schedule? This fear-mongering, it's condescension, it's labeling anti-vax conspiracy theory, it's, it's all of these terrible things. And so I just want to, maybe it's a good time to move into, I think we've hit everything that we wanted to talk about, of informed consent, okay? Mm-hmm. So t- if you decide that you listen to this and you're like, you know what? I'm going to make my own choices. We encourage you, of course, look at the VIS, so the vaccine insert statement. You can find that on the CDC website. Just Google VIS CDC, and you can find everything that Kat mentioned, for example, about MMR for every single vaccine that's on the schedule, okay? So we're going to talk about that. We're going to give you questions to ask your provider from both Dr. Sears, Aviva Rom, some personal questions that we've thought of. We're going to um, also provide some resources on finding those vaccine-friendly doctors in your area, talk about exemptions if you still want your kids to go to school, even though we don't necessarily follow the guidelines. So let's get into all that good stuff. Are you ready for that? Oh, I am so ready. Do we want to do the HPV thing real quick? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, I know we didn't we said that we weren't going to get into the specifics of every vaccine because that would take hours on end, but we have cited the books that we're pulling this from. I thought of one that was really interesting, Kat, which was Gardasil, which is the HPV vaccine. And like all of the rest in this book, Dr. Bob Sears goes through um, what's in it, what are the common side effects, what are the known severe reactions, and... For Gardasil, 
severe injection site reactions occur in about 10% of kids, which is much more common than with any other vaccine. There's also a big issue with autoimmune reactions in particular, and that occurs higher with HPV than any other vaccine, so much so that in 2013, the Japanese government stopped recommending this vaccine because of the side effects and the reports of autoimmune and neurological reactions, although it's still optional. And get a load of this. Many in the Japanese medical community have been asking to reinstate it. But the fact that the experts in Japan were concerned enough to remove it highlights an ongoing controversy over its safety. I have a question for you, April. Yeah, go ahead. I know for a fact that as of a few years ago, pediatricians have been advising parents to give the jab to their little boys, like boys who are not even teenagers yet. What's your take on that? The HPV. Well, so I, I have a I have a theory on this. The reason we get HPV vaccine is to prevent cervical cancer in, in women yes. and penile cancer in boys, but also genital warts. So I think pediatricians are starting to recommend this at a younger age because whether or not we want to believe it, our kids are out there having sex probably a lot earlier than their honeymoon, let's be honest, right? Mm -hmm. And so if they're being sexually active at a very young age, the chances of them getting genital warts, for example, is there. However, wouldn't you as a mother, especially to a young boy, want to, rather than vaccinate your child with Gardasil, rather just let him know the safety in being sexually active. So let's talk about the risk. Let's talk about ways to prevent STIs, et cetera, rather than saying, you know what, our kids are going to be sexually active before we want them to. So you know what, let's go ahead and vaccinate them. By the way, I just want to... I just want to add, I don't know if you were aware of this too, HPV itself is extremely common and most people don't even know they have it, well, men especially, but women also don't know. Um, And so just for example, the lack of informed consent around HPV in general looks like this, like, oh, HPV causes cervical cancer. Obviously, that sounds really scary. Nobody wants cervical cancer. So we think, oh, well, then obviously the vaccine will just solve all my problems. Well, I actually know some women who didn't have HPV. They got Gardasil as a defense mechanism, and they later still got HPV because there's so many strains of it. Even if you're having protected sex, you can still get it. Mm -hmm. But the real point is the likelihood of actually getting cervical cancer, even if you have HPV, is so low that in my personal opinion, it's not even worth getting Gardasil, which has been known to vaccine injure people. It's it's almost better to just, if you had to choose, get HPV, knowing Mm. that you're probably not going to get cervical cancer. And oftentimes it resolves on its own anyway. That's something that a lot of practitioners are not telling patients. Mm -hmm. And that also reminds me of pneumococcal, that vaccine Originally, it's it's been on the schedule for forever, but what we're finding is the the strain is mutating against what we're vaccinated against, and now there's over seventy strains of pneumococcal meningitis, 
And so we then wonder, like, are we creating more of a mess by trying to vaccinate against one or two strains? I think the current shot on the schedule only protects against the seven most frequent strains, but there's 70 plus. So we're Mm -hmm. never going to be fully able to vaccinate against every single strain of every single illness. And then aren't we introducing more risk by playing with the vaccines where we know that they will mutate to get stronger and fight against those vaccines. So for me, it's a, it's a pass, Uh, but I did, I will say I did get Gardasil um, Mm. in college. All three shots. I did because that was the thing. It was on every commercial. When I went into the clinic on campus, it was plastered everywhere. It was the biggest thing. Gardasil, Gardasil, Gardasil. So when I went in for a routine pap, it's funny. I went to university of Florida and when I went in for a pap smear, that Tim Tebow poster on the ceiling, which I thought was hilarious. Still see it in my brain. But in addition to that, it was Gardasil everywhere. So she was like, have you gotten the HPV? And I was like, no. She's like, are you going to? And I was like, okay. And that was the end of the conversation. There was no, well, what is it? What should I be concerned about? You know, I was totally ignorant to all this stuff. Which is okay. Like, why Why would you know back then, right? And we're taught to trust our doctors. Um, obviously, we know better now, but shame on your doctor for not having a true informed consent conversation. That reminds me, there's just one more quick thing about HPV that I'm now remembering. I have mm-hmm. an ex-boyfriend. This happened mm-hmm. a few years ago, long before Eric and I met. And his mom is a, is a physician. She's actually a specialist, a pediatric physician. And I would say that this woman, this is a very intelligent woman. She was a physician for about 30 plus years or so and has a daughter, I should say, kind of in our age range, slightly younger. And she and I were talking in the kitchen one day and she asked me if I ever got the HPV shot. I said, no. And I I didn't really want to go into detail. I just, I told her, I was like, I know that there's a lot of risks involved. My mom advised me that's one of the ones not to get. And Mm. HPV is very common. So, you know, it was like a risk benefit analysis thing. And I'm not really scared if I do get HPV. She was like, oh, well, I told my daughter that she has to get it. And I was like, oh, just curious. Why is that? She's like, well, because of the cervical cancer involved, you know, it's very dangerous. So my point is, this is a physician who's been in practice for 30 plus years, who isn't even aware or probably isn't even aware of the risks of the shot is just thinking of the benefit, the potential for the purported benefits of the shot. I thought that was fascinating. Well, I think it just goes to show how, and again, I've never been to medical school, but I highly doubt that the vaccines in terms of ingredients, in terms of studies on efficacy, I highly doubt that those are things that are going through with a fine tooth comb in med school. I think it's one of those things that has been widely accepted as vaccines eradicated polio and smallpox and yes. blah, blah, blah. Save and lives. So that, that's, yeah, that's the old news. And so it's it's kind of a closed chapter. Yes. That's my guess. But Absolutely. But anyway, that's yes. HPV. That's HPV. And speaking of HPV, since it was taken off the Japanese schedule, I know that you wanted to do a comparison between the U.S. schedule and... Um, I think you're doing Sweden just yes. by comparison to see how the schedules are different. Um, do you want to go through that? 
Yeah. And I guess it's not the most random country. As as many of you know, my husband <laughs> is from Sweden. So, you know, my in-laws and lots of friends are over in Sweden. And you know me, I always like to compare to see what other cultures and countries do. So in the United States, currently, everyone up to the age of 18 who's following the CDC schedule will get 72 shots. And then, and as as many of you know, a lot of these are mandatory if you want to attend certain schools, such as public schools, and mm-hmm. some more even mandatory depending on what state you live in. So, and you have to jump through some loopholes in order to get exemptions. Now, here's where it differs in Sweden. And I'm just going to, I actually pulled this from the Swedish government website. It's very easy to Google. Um, but one of the most glaring differences to me was that they're just recommendations. They're not mandates. The government is saying we recommend, right? Language is key, right? So we recommend your child gets these vaccinations. At the end of the day, even though it is a socialist country and people do place all their faith and trust in the government, the government in return places their faith and trust in Swedish parents to make the best decision for their children. And guess what? There Mm. are no repercussions. If you choose not to vaccinate your child, your child still can attend Swedish school. Whereas here we know what a pain in the ass it is. So in April, I'm going to go through this afterwards. Tell me what differences you notice between this Swedish schedule and the one that we have now in America. So let me pull up the CDC immunization schedule just for reference. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So Mm -hmm. high level, this table here shows schedule for children born in 2002 or later. First, I'm just going to tell you all the vaccines that they recommend. Rotavirus, diphtheria, so DTP, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis in one, polio, HIB, HIB, pneumonococcal disease, MMR, Mm -hmm. And HPV, but now I want, so that's it. That's it in this Wait, table. Now, so no yeah. chicken pox, no hepatitis nope. B, no hepatitis A. Nope. No, no HPV. I'm not seeing here. No, um, yes to HPV, which is strange because normally oh, okay. when it's, yeah, I feel like normally Sweden's pretty good. Like if it's one of those newer or, you know, more optional vaccines, it's not on their recommended schedule, but I don't know why. Mm. So let me just go through some ages here. So at six weeks old, if you're in Sweden, they're only recommending you get one dose of rotavirus. Then let's jump Wait to a second. Yeah. One question at six weeks. Yeah. Is six weeks the first age that they get anything? Yes. Interesting. So there's already a difference because in the US, you get hepatitis B on your birthday. Correct. Um, unless you say no, and a lot of people don't know why they're saying no, or they feel coerced, so they're getting on their birthday. Um, and so according to this table on the Swedish government site, right, things can change at any moment, but it looks like six weeks is the first. And then the next one, we're jumping to three months. And so, and then after that, it's five months, then 12 months, then 18 months. So by the way, you don't get your first MMR until 18 months and it's one dose. Thoughts on that, April? Wow. Okay. So we get MMR at as early as 12 months and that's when it's recommended. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then get a load of this. So now you see that we were going in increments of just a few months in infancy. So it jumps from 18 months old all the way to five years old. So at five years old, you're getting four doses of DTP, four yep. doses of polio, Um, And I'm not seeing anything else here. Then after five years old, then it says year of school instead of age. So like 
first to second right now. Sweden's a little bit different because they officially start school when you're seven years old instead of five. It's it's interesting like that. Yes. And so you graduate when you're closer to 19 years old. So year of school, it says one year one to two. So probably seven or eight. I'm not really sure. You get two doses of MMR. Then it jumps to year five of school. So you're probably around 11 or 12. You get one and two, dose one and two of HPV. That's it. I'm seeing a lot of stuff left out. What's most blatant to you that's left out from our schedule? Well, hep B, you get your first dose on your birthday, and then you get a second dose a month later, and you get a third dose three months later. Mm -hmm. So you're already with hepatitis B three times before Sweden (laughs) rotavirus, you're getting at two months and again at four months, just like DTP, you get four doses of DTP before your first birthday. And then you get another dose at 18 months and another dose at four to six years old. You're getting the inactivated polio virus first dose at two months, again at four months, again at six months, again at 18 months, and then again at five years old. I mean, this is crazy. This is just crazy. Yeah. If they were so effective, why would we have to do? <laughs> yeah. Days? So, well, I I have a theory on that that's actually been concluded by a few people. Again, it's it's sort of anecdotal, but if if you know people who are nurses who are administering these shots, some of them might reveal to you that the the only the main reason they're having parents go in for these quote well baby visits which we April and I joke they're more like sick baby visits your baby goes in well and comes home sick unfortunately it's it's a morbid joke but in any case it's to really train the parents to bring their babies in on a frequent basis because uh-huh. they know once you take your baby home from the hospital if you don't really have if if your child is well actu- actually well and not sick, then why would you keep making these visits to your pediatrician? So instead, if they're just like, okay, let's let's just make these routine, these well baby visits and get all these kids injected. That's why really we have so many injections. They want to ingrain it in the parents. Like, no, you are to come here on a frequent basis. You know, Aviva Ram does talk about that. And we're going to get into that when I go through her 10 tips as a parent looking at um, the immunization schedule and how to have these conversations with your pediatrician. It's interesting that you mentioned that because this was the first time I had seen that was in in her uh, blog post around that. Yes. So I want to hear what she has to say about that too. But does, does anything else stand out to you, I guess, between the differences between Sweden's recommended childhood vaccine schedule yeah. and the U.S.'s mandatory CDC one? I think that's the biggest thing. And it yeah. goes back to that Gandhi quote, you know, about coercion and it's not a moral thing. And mandatory vaccination policies or any type of coercive approach is a concern because then you're turning something that is supposed to be healthy and good, allegedly, into something bad. So if if it were so effective and if it were so safe and there wasn't any adverse effects and there wasn't this huge fund, then why would we need to mandate something that is beneficial to you? So the mm-hmm. fact that there's any sort of coercive tactic already makes me feel like it doesn't pass the sniff test, like something weird is going on there. Absolutely. And I think too... When as before we flip to informed consent and helping moms out, I think this was something very interesting. And Dr. Bob actually writes this in his foreword of his vaccine book. But he said, as a doctor, 
Did you know that some vaccines don't prevent the spread of their disease? That some <laughs> only reduce the severity of symptoms in each vaccinated individual, but they'll still catch the germs and still spread them to others. I didn't before I started this journey. As a wow. doctor who went through medical school, and it wasn't until he finished his residency did he figure this out. So I think that kind of ignorance about the nature of vaccination and infectious disease is fueling the prejudice behind anti-vaxxer versus pro-vaxxer. It's like, guys, we don't even know what we're arguing because we haven't done the homework. We haven't studied it. You know what I mean? So I thought that was interesting. I think that's interesting. It reminds me of a conversation we had the other day where we were talking about how we would have so much more faith, trust, and place credibility in doctors or, or any professional who admitted when they don't know the answer to something instead of making up something that yes. sounds good. For example, can we normalize, you know, we, we go to a doctor, we're like, hey, you know, what are what are all the adverse side effects? Can we normalize them saying, you know what, that's a good question. Honestly, I'm not sure. Um, this is what I was told, but here's the answer so you can do the research. Right. And it should, regardless, regardless if your doctor knows it or not, you should you should ask to see those inserts so you have 100% confidence and clarity about what's being put into your baby's body. So let's go on. Let's talk about how we set moms up for success. Now now that you've heard some of the background, maybe you're a little skeptical too. That's okay. So Aviva Ram, who is the first author that we talked about, um, she actually provided 10 tips. And this is found on her website. She has a blog post. Um, so 10 tips for easing the immunization conversation with your child's doctor. Should we go through them? Yes, please. Okay. Number one, interview your pediatrician and family doctors before you have your baby to find oh, yeah. a like-minded doctor for your child. If you already have a doctor but cannot come to a respectful agreement about vaccinations, it might be better to find another provider. It is important to have good quality communication with your child's care provider. There Quick should question. not be... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. How many weeks pregnant were you when you interviewed your pediatrician? Ooh, good question. I think I was seven months and okay. I started to call around just to try and find providers who were vaccine friendly. Smart. Which is hard to do. <laughs> yeah, you're so, telling me. <laughs> mm -hmm. So if you're leaving the office feeling like there's this air of condescension or you're starting to be labeled or berated, that's not the provider for you. Um, second thing. Start with the premise that your doctor went into family medicine or pediatrics because he or she loves kids and genuinely, genuinely has your child's best interest in mind, even if your idea of what's best are different. And let your doctor know you believe that she has your kiddo's best interest in mind, that you simply have questions and concerns about vaccines and you would like to understand your doctor's perspective on it. Mm -hmm. And that you would also like to share yours, which I thought was really good because what we don't want to do is cause a bunch of friction and go in there guns ablazing and be like, I'm anti-vax and you need to comply with me. But it's like, hey, I trust that you went into this business for the right reason. So let's talk about it. Yes. Nobody think? wants to, I agree with that. I, I also think it's valid for birth plans. Nobody wants to be put on the defense. 
So nobody wants to feel like they are being prematurely attacked because you never know, maybe your doctor does secretly or not so secretly align with your values and viewpoints. And maybe they're in a practice where they're they're told to keep quiet, but maybe they will find ways to support you. I also want to add on to that. I really like Dr. Rom's points. I think it's always good anytime you're interviewing your doctor to ask open-ended questions. Try not to ask leading questions or meaning ask a question that starts with like a who, what, when, where, why, how, or like, what do you think about instead of do you like are vaccines safe? You know what I mean? Right. Don't ask yes, no questions. You want to get, you, you want to understand their perspective. That's what you're trying to do. This one I thought was incredibly smart. Set up an appointment solely to discuss vaccinations with the doctor prior to your child's first immunizations. This allows you and the doctor plenty of time to talk rather than trying to squeeze your concerns into an already full well child visit. Absolutely. Yeah. You never want to make decisions under duress. Yes. And I love this one too. Explain to your child's doctor that you want to have an effective partnership for the optimal care of your child. What's, what stands out to you in that one? partnership. It's almost, it almost never in mainstream medicine, right? It almost is never a partnership. You have someone higher than you in the hierarchy telling you what's going to happen, telling you what they're going to put in your body, but it's never Mm -hmm. a conversation. Yes. So number five, respectfully and calmly rather than emotionally, let the doctors know that you would like to use an alternative model of vaccinations, whether that's delaying the start, stretching out the schedule or omitting some altogether. Mm -hmm. I think that's Mm -hmm. important because I know, April, we've been talking about a lot of the risks with vaccines and maybe, maybe some people would believe, oh, we're we're biased against all of uh, against everyone getting all vaccines but really there's so much in between you can delay and maybe you just want to selectively pick some that makes sense for your child maybe not yeah. all of them make sense for your child right and here's get a load of this while the AAP does recommend the full conventional schedule according to their very own guidelines children should not be penalized by loss of medical care based on their parents choices Yet we know it happens all the time here in America. All the time. It's illegal. Yes, that's exactly right. It's against their own guidelines. Okay, number six, ask your child's doctor what he or she knows about alternative immunization schedules and what alternatives he or she can recommend and support. Mm -hmm. Number seven, if you have specific concerns about one to two or several vaccinations or about vaccination ingredients such as the preservatives, explain that clearly, stating that you would, in fact, like to give most of the vaccines and also explain which you would like to omit. So just be factual. Don't be emotional. It's like, hey, I'm worried about formaldehyde. I'm worried about aluminum. I'm worried about mercury. So that's why I want to forego these ones. Now, Um, April, I want to say something here because I would imagine many moms have already tried doing this or have thought about trying doing this. And their doctors have retorted with, oh, it's such a trace amount. You know, it, it, like, look at all the millions of people who have successfully been vaccinated without any issues. Like, you're really afraid of a little uh, aluminum or don't you use aluminum for your cooking at home? So here's the real point. The, the issue is not to necessarily try to get everyone to agree with all your viewpoints. You might not side with your doctor 100% on every issue. So no is a complete sentence. 
Okay. Yep. And you can also say, let's agree to disagree. Or, hmm, you know what? I need to think about it with my spouse. Let me get back to you before we make any decisions. I love that. If you're unsure, wait. Yeah. If Don't just unsure, do it. Wait. There's no need to rush. Okay. Number eight, let the physician know that you are willing to document your decision to alternatively vaccinate or to refuse vaccinations by signing a waiver. Number nine, ask your child's doctor for information on what to look out for and what to do should your child be exposed to an infectious disease. So if you choose not to vaccinate, that's a, this is an appropriate follow-up question and they cannot shame you. They cannot just say, well, then you should, if you're so worried about the disease, get vaccinated. They are also practitioners to help when the child actually does become ill with a particular infectious disease. That's what they're there for as well. So don't let them... No make you feel like that's not true. So April, I know for a fact, I agree with you. That is what they went into this industry to do, right? And do no harm. However, I know for a fact that some doctors will shame and embarrass parents for their decisions to not vaccinate. And they'll, they'll say things like, so you want a dead baby? So you'd rather <laughs> let your child, you'd rather let your child die? Or um, don't you know the consequences of this? You know, again, maybe that yes. bigger picture, that's not your doctor, right? Maybe that's this not your is doctor. Not a good fit. Yeah. And if you're, if conversely, we're telling you to go into the appointment factual and not emotional. So if your doctor starts to get emotional, you might then want to think about peeling back the layers of that doctor. What's motivating him to be so, or, or her to be so emotional? Maybe there's a really strong bias there. And that's okay to try and explore. It's like, hey, it seems like we don't agree on this, but do you really think if I don't vaccinate my child that my child will die? You know, and some start, of them will say yes. Back to that factual, <laughs> bring it right. back to that factual discussion. And if they say yes, then you know they're full of shit. Yeah, pretty um, much. Yeah, and it's not your doctor. So number 10, welcome an ongoing conversation about vaccinations with your child's doctor, but respectfully ask that you not be pressured about your decisions at each visit. I love it. I think this is love an incredible too. list. So this is yeah. all from Dr. Aviva Ram. Yes, and those were just her tips on how to set up a, a strong partnership with your with your provider around the immunization. Now, if you decide to go into these well baby visits and you're unsure of all of this stuff and you want to hear it from your provider, here are some recommended questions to ask to have a fully informed decision. This is what informed consent should sound like. Number one, how dangerous is the disease against which I am vaccinating? This must be answered for each disease for which each vaccine is given, right? So if you're getting MMR, I want to hear the danger of measles, mumps, and rubella, right? Right. And danger isn't, it's very dangerous. It's very scary. I'm sorry, but you cannot quantify the word very. I want specifics. Correct. Yes. What is the likelihood of my child's contracting this disease if I don't vaccinate versus if I do vaccinate? Remember, she says, vaccine, vaccines are not 100% effective. As so we kind of talked about that. Yeah, we talked <laughs> right. about MMR and I think we talked about the um, DTAP as well about the prevalence of those diseases today. So we've talked about the risk of actually getting those, but what's the risk of contracting those if you vaccinate? Because some uh -huh. of these vaccines have a live strain. 
So, well, just look at yeah. flu, for example. Exactly. All right. Number three, what are the risks of the vaccine and how likely are these to occur? Again, to your point, a lot, very much, many, that's not an answer. Yeah. I want to know statistics. Remember, your doctor went to med school, so they had to take all kinds of advanced math and science, okay, statistics, and statistics. Mm-hmm. right? So when they say it's very, oh, it's very scary, I'm sorry, you can do better. Yeah, and if they if they don't have that answer, hey, it's okay that you don't have that answer today, but I'll need that before I feel confident moving forward with this vaccine. Yes. All right. Is my child at high risk for an adverse reaction to the vaccine? So this is a really good point that we didn't talk much about that we should. There are contraindications for these vaccines. It is the parent's responsibility to fully know the contraindications for everything because your doctor might not come across that. They might not be well-versed in that, right? Because they're just used to administering these things. So it's incredibly important for you to know if there is an allergy to something, for example, in your child, then you shouldn't move forward with a vaccine that contains that allergen, right? So there are resources. Well, for example, if you have a allergic reaction to baker's yeast, you should not get the hepatitis B vaccine. However, the challenge with knowing what you're allergic to on your birthday is pretty hard to test against. So hepatitis B, a contraindication, a true contraindication is an anaphylactic reaction to baker's yeast. But you can find more of the contraindications in Aviva Rahm's book on page 142. She has a whole table. So there you have it. So parents, remember, yes, we want you to trust your doctor to an extent. Also have a healthy dose of skepticism. But remember, at the end of the day, parents, it is your responsibility for looking after your child, not the government's. Okay, not the vaccine manufacturers. It is your responsibility. Exactly. All right, rounding up on this informed consent conversation, can I minimize my child's risk of a vaccine reaction? So if they are vaccinated and there is an adverse reaction, what are some things we can do to minimize that? And it's not Tylenol. No, yeah, please Enough of the the children's Tylenol. I feel like it's nowadays it's everything needs Tylenol, teething, Tylenol, fever, Tylenol. That really so, should be a last resort. But go ahead. Yeah, if you're gonna if there if your child is in pain or discomfort, we don't like Tylenol because of a whole list of reasons. But a lot of those yucky additives we don't want to give to our babies. So there is a an alternative. I think it's called Genexa, yes. which is a clean version of Tylenol, but also in Aviva Rahm's book in the very back is a homeopathy section all about ways to minimize the adverse events in case they do happen. We talked about vitamin A, for example, there's a ton and she has a whole library in the back of this book, fully diving into those. I'm going to be getting this book myself because I have a lot of the books, but that's one I don't. I like Dr. Rahm. All right. And then... What legal concerns does my decision involve? And can I live comfortably with my decision if I choose not to vaccinate? Those are the questions that you need to fully have answered in order to be fully informed and confident about moving forward. 
Well, I, I do have others, but maybe it's better for another episode. I have other questions that to ask your pediatricians, such as how they handle ear infections and what they recommend for fevers that isn't vaccine related. So I think, I think Dr. Rom did a great job of covering the main ones here. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So we've done the vaccine facts. Um, one thing I did want to mention too, and this is just, uh, it might be minutia, but I, I liked it from Dr. Rom's book too. She says, because vaccines confer artificial immunity rather than natural immunity, many writers prefer to use the term vaccination rather than immunization when referring to inoculations. So vaccinations are not necessarily immunizations because as we know not all of them fully immunize you against the disease maybe they just reduce the symptoms maybe the immunity wanes and so make sure that when you're talking about this with others that you're clear on that as well that vaccination and immunization are two very different words with two very different meanings and if you're curious Aviva Ram in the very beginning of her book goes through the ABCs of immunity. She defines bacteria, viruses, parasites. She talks in depth about the marvelous immune system. She talks about the cascade of chemicals and epidemiology and the cognitive network and the nervous system and how all of these things interplay. And then she gets into the history of vaccines. She talks about white blood cells and red blood cells and how at a cellular level vaccines work and how diseases work too. So it's very informative if you want to know more about that. Yes. And on that point, I remember back in the day, many years ago, you used to be able to freely speak about natural immunity. And then all of a sudden in 2020, you know, you weren't allowed to talk about having natural immunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that wasn't a thing. And even if you got, you know, you know what, naturally, you still were under duress to still get artificial immunity. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So if you decide to, after you go into your appointment, you ask all your questions, you pick and choose which vaccines are appropriate for your child and when. So just because the schedule tells you when to do it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to follow that, especially if your child is having a reaction to it. So if your child is having a fever, maybe we wait until we Mm -hmm. go back for that next dose and maybe we separate out those um, multivalent drugs, right? So yeah. If you decide to go forward with those, what are some tips that we can offer the moms to reduce potential adverse effects or to be easier on the baby? Okay. So if I was a mom who did choose to vaccinate my son, I would defer the schedule as long as humanly possible. Um, Let's say I had no other options, right? I couldn't live in a state that allowed for exemptions. I couldn't pull him out of public school, Whatever the reason may be, I'm going to defer until like maybe day one of him starting public school, meaning I'm going to not get anything in infancy. Um, And like you said, too, I'm not going to get any multivalence. I will be spacing them out as much as possible. And anything that is not mandatory, I'm going to have a hard pass on. So that is what I would do hypothetically if I was a mom who was going to vaccinate my son. And would you add or change anything to that yourself? Holding on to your tonsils. 
So I know that there's a big kind of movement around getting your tonsils removed. I remember so many of my classmates in the 90s would get their tonsils removed. I never had mine removed, but it was such a common trend. Okay. It's page 157 of Aviva Rahm's book, Natural Approaches to Health and Immunity is chapter seven. It says, hold on to those tonsils. Children who have had their tonsils removed are at a significantly greater risk of contracting infections, especially through upper respiratory passages. That was another thing that she said. A child, and we've, ta- we've already said this before, but a child would never be naturally exposed to seven infectious agents at once. Right. Additionally, children are exposed to infectious organisms most commonly through their respiratory passages, not through injections, right? Because they're always putting their freaking dirty hands in their mouth. Yes. So that's that's how you contract these diseases. So when you're going in there and getting the MMR, the DTAP, the Hib, and whatever else on the schedule for that one appointment, nowhere in nature would that ever happen. So you got to wonder why we have all of these crazy effects. So anyway, the, the last thing to answer your question is to hold on to the uh, the tonsils. And for me, regardless of what I'm deciding, I'm asking to see those vaccine information statements. Oh, on yeah. Every single one. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a given for sure. And actually, I want to plug a, a, another great Instagram account. It's at just the inserts. Yes. And it's literally just all the vaccine inserts and so much more, right? So it's just sharing information. Let's let's not let sharing of factual information out there, you know, shame us or trigger us. And look, we, we recognize there may be there might be some listeners out there thinking like, well, I started on the schedule. Now I'm having second thoughts. You can cancel at any time. It's not one of those things where once you start, you have to go through to entirety. You can cancel today. Um, you can, you're allowed to change your mind. Let's normalize changing our minds when presented with new information. But Mm -hmm. I also want to talk about for parents who are interested in getting exemptions for their children, what that might look like. Yeah. Uh, And did we already plug how to find the pediatricians? Oh, let's do that first. Yeah. So one of my favorite resources is Dr. Green Mom. She's an actual doctor with a website. And um, this is actually how we found Julian's pediatric practice. It's holistic pediatrics. They're really great. It's holistic, W-H-O-L-I-S-T-I-C. If you're in the Tampa Bay area, we drive 40 minutes there. He's only ever been to the pediatrician twice, once when he was like a week old, once when he was two weeks old. That's it. He's never had any pokes. Um, He's now six months old. And um, this is the type of practice that is not uh, with any insurance panels. You do have to pay out of pocket. But you'll you'll realize if you have a healthy term baby and you're not doing interventions on your baby, um, and especially if you're you're breastfeeding and they're getting all the great antibodies from your breast milk, then the odds of you having to go to a pediatrician monthly or every two months in the first year of life are extremely low. And that has been the case for us. Pretty sure that's been the case for you. If, Mm -hmm. If you think about it, what are they doing at the pediatrician's office? Yes, they're looking for milestone developments and potential delays, but they're weighing your baby and then they're going to give your baby shots. So if you really want to know how big your baby is, you can buy a baby scale. They're very cheap. Or I have an adult scale and I simply hold my baby on the scale, 
right? And if I'm concerned with weight gain, I actually consult with an IBCLC I have rather than a pediatrician. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Go to Dr. Green Mom. She has a free Google Sheet. All you have to do is submit your email. This is not behind a paywall. And um, in this Google Sheet, you can find a vax-friendly or vax-tolerant pediatrician in your area. It's a living document. So for the past 10 years, she has been adding to Dr. Sears' list of pro-medical freedom doctors across America. And um, I see this document is regularly updated. So essentially, it's going to be a list of doctors who vaccinate, allow you to follow alternative schedules, and or are comfortable with your decision not to vaccinate your child. I want to say too, and then I want to hear your experience about this, and then I want to talk about exemptions. So Julian, I mentioned, has only ever seen the pediatrician twice. He's never had any jabs, including the vitamin K shot. He's also never had whooping cough, RSV, COVID, all the other things that they warn you that your baby can get sick from, hospitalized, or, or die from. He's never had, knock on wood. But um, he is extremely alert. He's very healthy. He's a happy, thriving baby. And um, I, I, I really don't see it that changing. What's your experience with Eden? Same. So we had a home birth, so we didn't have that first appointment that most people have. Um, we did take her in at... I think she was a month old for her first appointment with the PED and he was blown away. Maybe it was two weeks actually, because at that point, you know how they say when your baby's born within the first two weeks, they need to get back to their birth weight. Yes. You know, she never dipped. <laughs> so <laughs> when we went in for that appointment, he was looking at her chart from her birthday and was like, wow, she's heavier than on her birthday. And I was like, She's happy and thriving. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, they weighed her. They measured the length. She's in the 99th and 97th percentile for weight and height. So that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, she's doing all right. So she's a happy, beautiful, healthy, thriving girl. Um, yes. As is Julian, though Julian's a boy. So, you know, our babies are three months and six months. And this just goes to show you what it looks like to kind of be an alternative critical thinking mom. We don't follow the schedule. We are very happy and confident in our decision. Um, Mm -hmm. And we, because as you see, we've done the research. um, So we have zero regrets. Right. And thankfully, you know, Eden hasn't gotten sick, but if she does get sick, I feel really confident in having this little library of homeopathy. I know that's kind of recently come under scrutiny from the CDC. I wonder why. Oh, yeah. I, I, gee, I wonder why. It's like follow the money or follow right. where there's no money and then they're going to get mad about it. Right. So um, <laughs> that stuff has worked for, for me as an adult. So I imagine it will work for Eden. Actually, I'll plug this. Eden got a yeast infection under her armpit. Remember that? Right. Yeah, I do. And rather than going to the doctor or going calling the pediatrician, I just put coconut oil on there. And then in two days, it was gone. So boom. Coconut and oil. It's a lot cheaper. So cheap. Right? So anyway, I put that shit on everything. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. I mean, that's we trust in nature. So, you know, has Julian gotten sick? Yeah. But who doesn't? It's like a mild cold during, you know, quote, cold season, but um, it's really nothing to be alarmed at. Right. Uh, so You're building his immunity. It's, it's yeah. all good in the long term. And I think 
before we finish, because I know we're going to do the uh, exemptions, exemptions before <laughs> we finish, I want to say this. And, and this is coming from Dr. Bob's book, too. He said, the CDC schedule has become dogma. You don't question it. And if you do, you are immediately labeled anti-vaccine. So doctors stopped questioning it. We are not allowed as parents to question medicine with a capital M or we're berated. However, we can ask them about everything else. Yep. We can ask them about allergies. We can ask them about weight gain. We can ask them about everything else that would concern our child, except this one topic is taboo. We can't talk about it. Canceled. Yep. Strange. Weird, right? Mm-hmm. Weird. We have to ask why. How did we get there? Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, let's go on to exemptions because you and I might have to look into this at a later date. (laughs) Oh, I'm (laughs) sure we definitely will. (laughs) So let's let's help our listeners who might be uh, in the same boat as us. How can we um, maybe pursue exemptions so so our kids can go to school? I know, right? Can you, can you believe this? So we, so far, we live in a somewhat free country. I mean, some of our freedoms are being revoked, but you can still get exemptions for your kid, okay? So the big picture is there's three different kinds. You can get a medical one, which personally, from what I heard, I don't really recommend. Um, it's very difficult to get that one. You can try. I know the religious ones are a little bit easier to get. And no, you don't have to be devout, right? You don't have to be Orthodox Jewish or extremely Catholic or anything, anything to an extreme extent. In fact, you technically don't even have to be religious, but just know you can get a religious exemption or a philosophical vaccine exemption so that your child can attend public school without getting vaccinated. You can visit this site so that you can learn more at your leisure it's, we'll link it in the episode description. There are, I'm just going to quote real quick. There are 44 states and Washington, D.C. that grant religious exemptions for people who have religious objections to immunizations. Currently, 15 states allow philosophical exemptions for children whose parents object to immunizations because of personal, moral, or other beliefs. Many states align their vaccine requirements with recommendations from the CDC and Prevention's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. But hold up, this is a little sad. At this Mm. time, California and the District of Columbia will require children to receive an FDA-approved COVID-19 vaccine for school entry in 2022. And some cities, counties, and school districts have added COVID-19 vaccine requirements for certain age groups, Um, or for certain activities such as participating in sports. Now, you and I both know, April, aside from all the adverse side effects of COVID-19, it doesn't really make sense for the huge, a huge majority of children to get the vaccine. We know that they are not really impacted by COVID and that they're not really dying from it. They're not the at-risk demographic. No. And a lot of countries have even banned the vaccine for minors altogether, the COVID-19 vaccine. So is it really any wonder why we see so many open-minded families fleeing California (laughs) to more freedom states such as Florida and Tennessee and Texas? Is it really that shocking? Not shocking at all. Um, The last thing I want to end on, thank you for doing that. Um, the last thing I want to leave our listeners with, because we've talked about a lot of studies that were pharma funded, 
there's been a meta-analysis conducted by a doctor over in Oregon, a pediatrician, and uh, this was not funded by pharmacy uh, or pharmaceuticals. So I thought this one was interesting. But and maybe we can figure out a way to share the graphic with our listeners too. If not, I'll definitely link the report. Little disclaimer, this doctor actually had his license revoked during COVID for being deemed an anti-vaxxer, even though he was a vaccine-friendly doctor. And some of his patients did get vaccinated. Many of them did not. But he did a meta-analysis on 21,000 patient records. And then he plotted the cumulative office visits with the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated patients who were born into their this practice. And then the bottom axis is the days of life. And then he mapped it out for different diagnoses. So uh, uh, for these two patient groups, right? So for example, he's, he's done this for asthma, allergic rhinitis, breathing issues, behavioral issues, ADHD, respiratory infection, ear pain, eye disorders, dermatitis, eczema. Mm. And then the vaccinated patients are an orange line and the unvaccinated patients are the green line. And when you see this report, you're going to see that the vaccinated children actually have a much higher incidence by a multiple multiplier factor of 4.9. But I thought vaccines make us healthier, April. I know. Get a load of this, 21,000 patients. So this isn't just like a, a tiny little study. And this was done with all of his patients. So I thought that was just mind-blowing. So yeah. we don't... This this is for those kind of adverse events that we talked about. Now, this isn't instances of the actual infections that you're inoculating against, but um, I thought that was really interesting. And I've heard of tons and tons of friends who have recently vaccinated their babies and then eczema's come up. So it's really quite sad, but this is um, some data to support that. In the wow. final conclusion of this report, he said, we could detect no widespread negative health effects in the unvaccinated other than the rare but significant vaccine-targeted diagnosis. We you can know, conclude... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. We can I conclude that the unvaccinated children in this practice are not overall less healthy than the vaccinated and that indeed the vaccinated children appear to be significantly less healthy than the unvaccinated. So it reminds me of a few things. Well, one, it's very uh, similar to what Dr. Thomas Cowan says in the book I referenced before where we're talking about measles. But also I'm thinking of groups like populations in society that um, are known to not get any vaccines and just how few allergies they have, if, if any, and they really, really never get sick. I'm thinking of the Amish in particular. Mm -hmm. And parts of Africa too. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of that and... Um, you know, I'm also thinking of this country, but in a totally different time period, you know, like 50 or 50, 60 years ago when people were just getting, you know, four vaccines, let's say, instead of 72 different shots and how a lot of these autoimmune disorders were unheard of back then. Right. It makes you scratch your head. And that's what we're here for, right? This is why we bring all this stuff to light. Again, we don't want you to make the decisions we're making. We want you to make informed, empowered decisions and, and know 
all the risks and all the benefits. And we definitely didn't even scratch the surface with risks. We only really talked about MMR and DTaP and HPV. There are tons of others. And there are plenty of resources out there to help educate yourself. Because after all, what we're talking about here, and I'll quote Dr. Bob, he says, the 70 vaccinations on the CDC schedule are by far the most complicated and invasive medical treatments your child will ever receive, barring something like chemotherapy for cancer. And right now, some infants are getting up to nine vaccines in one day, which is crazy. So we just want to make sure that you are fully informed before you head into that appointment. The books we talked about, the vaccine book, the vaccinations, a thoughtful parent's guide. We talked about dissolving illusions. So those are the ones to get started with if you want to jump down this journey with us. So I think that's it for today's episode. This will be a two-parter. However, if there are things that you want us moms to further research for you, maybe you have an appointment coming up and you want us to do a deep dive into something else. We've already gone through the books. We're happy to look through them again for you. Either send us an email at momsofftherecordpod, P-O-D, at gmail.com or send us a DM on Instagram at momsofftherecordpod and we will be happy to answer as many questions as we can for you. Yes. And if you took anything insightful or enlightening away from today's two-part series, if you wouldn't mind leaving us um, a five-star review and (laughs) writing a review on Apple Podcasts. We would be greatly appreciative. This way we can help spread the word to other open-minded and concerned parents out there. Um, And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. Tell your friends, tell your family. We really appreciate the support and you tuning in. Yes. Thank you so much, guys. We'll catch you on the next one. Bye.